Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today on a Saturday for an introductory session on uh, the insolvency and bankruptcy code and how it essentially has come, up, come into being. Our speakers for today are two people who have been actively involved in the drafting and the inception and the back-end research. So many ands there. So essentially, these are two speakers who have been involved in the ins and outs of the insolvency and bankruptcy code. I want to just quickly start with some housekeeping rules. I see that about 80, 90 of you who have joined. And uh, what I would like to flag out is that this is only a law session. I know this is a lot of you are uh, going to be students or are hoping to be students or are students presently studying corporate insolvency. So you are free to raise any questions in and around the law. Questions on careers, questions on what the program, the blended learning program, the LLM, the financial law LLM is all about will be separately answered by admin. So you can put in, put your queries into the chat box and uh, Sandeep from Upgrad will take it forward and respond to you in real time. During the session, we will not be answering any careers question. During the session, we will also not be answering any internship-related questions. You are free to write your questions related to any of these, the admission process, internships, careers, in the chat box, and you will get an answer from our admissions team. Okay? Now, having said that, I'm just going to do a kickoff into what the session is structured as. So the structure... The structure of the session is essentially split into five questions, which the panelists and I, as a moderator, will speak about, which will be about 30 to 35 minutes of the session. During this conversation, we will not be addressing any participant questions. Your, your questions will be looked at 25 the 25-30 minute slot that has been reserved for the open house. So you are free to drop the question if you think of it during the session, which happens often, during the Q&A round that is happening for the first 30 to 35 minutes. And we will get to your questions after the conversation between the panelists and me as a moderator is completed. So with that, let me just... Uh, kickstart this session. I'm going to 10 seconds speak about Behram Vakil and Devant Mukherjee because I know all of you want to Google the speakers if you already don't know them. Uh, Behram, of course, leading name in banking and finance, leading name in law in general in terms of transactions, in terms of policy, very active participant in everything that we know in terms of uh, the banking and finance space in specific as well. Debanchu, of course, is one of the leading names in terms of policy and corporate policy, very actively involved in all economic and corporate policies. So with that, I want to kickstart this session and speak a little bit about the history of the session 
um, in general, um, history of the law in general, which is the kickstart of this session. Now, uh, to the both of you, the insolvency and bankruptcy regime has essentially been a whirlwind introduction of sorts because it is also the fastest law that was implemented. It was the um, swiftest change that a lot of stakeholders in the commercial world uh, appreciated and were also, in a sense, overwhelmed by. Uh, so I want to basically kickstart into why the two terms, insolvency and bankruptcy, were brought together and how this process essentially completed itself. How did the IBC 2016 come about? And uh, from a drafters and a policy perspective, uh, perhaps, Dibanshu, you could start the conversation. Yeah, so hi, uh, hi, Shana. Hi, Bairam. Uh, thank you so much for inviting me uh, for this talk. Uh, uh, good to see you, all of you. Uh, yeah, so essentially, in terms of background, uh, you know, bankruptcy law reforms has been, you know, uh, it's been in, you know, in discussions even before the BLRC kind of recommended this law. And uh, so it's not the first committee that kind of proposed bankruptcy reforms. But what, what was the biggest change in this one was the fact that the government actually went ahead and implemented the reform. And I think there are a couple of, uh, of factors that are responsible <clears throat> uh, for the for the manner and the speed in which this happened. And, you know, and, uh, and the first... Uh, factor essentially is the state of the economy around 2013-14 you know uh, the NPA problem you know was significantly uh, huge around 2013-14 uh, Raghuram Rajan had just been appointed the governor of the Reserve Bank of India and very soon after he took office he had been talking about the need for uh, a separate bankruptcy law in India uh, because all other laws before that were, which related to bankruptcy were essentially defunct like you had the Companies Act 1956 uh, for liquidation of insolvent companies. You had the Sikh Industrial Companies Act for uh, reorganization of uh, uh, industrial companies. Uh, you had Sarfesi Act for debt recovery. You had the Debt Recovery Act uh, for debt which, you know, through which you could recover debts uh, on, you know, uh, by filing applications with the Debt Recovery Tribunal. Then you had some uh, informal arrangements under RBI's debt restructuring schemes. And you also had these personal insolvency acts. But all in all, most of these laws were very ineffective in practice. And uh, so in terms of actual outcomes, we, we had very little to talk about. Uh, although Sarfesi Act kind of worked reasonably well in comparison to others. But, you know, in, you know, in comparison to what we have today, it was a very ineffective and, uh, you know, defunct regime. So, uh, and therefore, you know, the Reserve Bank of India under Rajan at that time was pushing for a bankruptcy reforms. And it's... And then when the new government came in, in May 2014, uh, they also kind of bought into this idea. And in July you know, 2014, in the first budget announcement of the government, they said that you know, bank, there was an entry on bankruptcy reform. Although originally it was only limited to uh, medium, uh, micro and small industries. When the committee was eventually appointed, it became a larger project and they looked at the uh, entire, entire ecosystem. And that's what the law kind of provides for currently. So, uh, so that was the background essentially. So, kind of driven by RBI, then when the new government and RBI actually had started talking about it even before uh, the new government came in. And once the government came in, they kind of bought into it. And then several factors for that. Initially, 
they were concerned about india's ranking on the world bank's ease of doing business uh, indicators and uh, but over a period of time they realized the act you know real value of this reform and but in my assessment at in the in the initial stage they were largely concerned about this world bank ease of business doing ranking uh, but and uh, with the kind of results this law has seen over the uh, last four years since it's been in operation uh, i think it's it, we can easily kind of classify it as one of the most successful economic reforms that india has seen since, since independence so i think both in terms of the design of the law and uh, the manner in which it got implemented and is getting practiced and rolled out as we speak uh, so it's a radical radical shift from the past so yeah so that was kind of in my assessment the broad background and uh, you know and pehran is actually the right person to kind of talk about some of the details of the law itself and the manner in which it was designed because he also advised the uh, the you know uh, 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 the, uh, the committee on financial sector reforms that raguram rajan was heading in 2007 8 and they had also kind of proposed bankruptcy reforms so he advised that committee and then he eventually got appointed as a member of the blrc so uh, he'll have that background too and the reason i mentioned this you know uh, npa crisis background right at the outset is because some people have said that this is a very creditor driven type of a regime and i think the background you know kind of explains why that is the case because we essentially had a very deformed system where creditors had no recourse and now therefore this new law kind of tries to balance it the question is that is there a bit of overbalancing that has happened as a result of this so that's essentially the background so uh, from a deformed system to a radically different highly efficient system in very quick time thank you for that tibanshu now baram why insolvency and bankruptcy and we can start with that <laughs> yeah so uh, thanks a million uh, and sincere apologies to you and everybody else who has been kind enough to log in uh, like many lawyers of my age i'm you know tech illiterate so sincere apologies for that delay and thank you so much for the opportunity and uh, it's especially a pleasure to be on a panel with such a good friend who was there right holding the pen from day one so uh, in fact uh, why uh, why the title i think that also he should answer but uh, you know i want to go back into the history a bit in that uh, we kind of flip roles ishana sorry because he's given you more the legalistic approach and i'll give you a little bit of the policy so definitely uh, the rbi headed by governor rajan was uh, uh, pushing it and in fairness uh, the uh, government i've never seen in my 35 year career her all arms of the government working together in unison for one goal achieves uh, you know something which india to be honest is not very well known for and that is speed so we did this from scratch in 13 months singapore for example took 3 years normally you know singapore is that uh, hallmark of efficiency uh, most of the european countries and the us etc took even longer so 13 months is a record of sorts and that was because uh, you know the ministries involved this was spearheaded at that time by uh, ministry of finance now it's implemented by ministry of company affairs and uh, but ministry of law 
the RBI, of course, in fact, they even hosted a meeting of ours of the BLRC. Uh, SEBI was extremely uh, cooperative. Uh, Competition Commission from day one has been fantastic. Again, the speed at which it's giving approvals. So uh, it was everyone coming together, which shows that when they want to, we can move really fast. And even more incredible is that it took 13 seems a lucky number for the IBC because it took 13 months after the law was passed, both houses, after the joint parliamentary committee to get implemented. And again, that's a big feat because you have to remember two things. One is a brand new regulator, the IBBI, and two is a brand new set of professionals. And, you know, uh, there was a lot of Uh, anxiety that to set up a brand new set of professionals, insolvency professionals from scratch, uh, will you be able to do that fast enough? And today, uh, we have more IPs in India than the UK has uh, after 30 years. Of course, our population is slightly larger than the UK, but still, it's a pretty incredible feat. So going back to the history, why was RBI so keen? And RBI was so keen because we had a massive NPA problem. And uh, sadly, uh, the numbers are pretty much the same. Uh, It was getting better. IBC was doing the job. But because of COVID, again, we've uh, slipped, which is normal everywhere else in the world. It's the same. And, uh, you know, very quickly, without credit, which is really the oil that runs the economy, without credit, the whole economy... Uh, freezes uh, because everyone needs money to operate their businesses. So, and if the banks, you know, uh, that's why, as they say, the uh, in some ways the triple balance sheet. Because if the bank balance sheets are in such bad shape, corporate balance sheets are bad, and of course the government fiscal is also challenged. Then uh, it's extremely difficult situation. So that is why RBI and the Ministry of Finance. Uh, especially the FM, then uh, Mr. Jaitley really moved this fast. The second one, just three points quickly. The second one was that the feeling was that uh, for the SMEs, which again is the uh, creates the vast majority of our jobs in India uh, and is very crucial even in terms of numbers, did not get a fair deal. Their bargaining power was very poor. So when they had to go out and collect their debts, they barely got into the door. I mean, usually uh, they didn't even get a meeting. So you had to give them something. So to Devanshu's point that here, this included all creditors, including operational creditors, which are these small guys who are crucial to the economy. And IBC has shown, even though very clearly it's not a recovery mechanism, This is a restructuring or worst case liquidation mechanism. But the first goal is restructuring to keep those assets productive, to keep the jobs going. So, uh, you know, the the critical thing then was that you include everybody. So banks, uh, operational creditors, bondholders, whoever they are. Uh, And and also, uh, finally, the issue that our credit as a country was very skewed. Uh, Debanshu will remember the exact number, but it was over 80% of the credit was from the banks. As you mature, 
you have to access both the bond market and the banks everything all the heavy lifting can't be done by the banks and therefore the game was that with this the bond market will have more confidence because if you default they can get you faster which again i'm very glad to say in the short time the bond market the percentages have improved it's still very skewed to bank credit but these were the three major policy reforms give smes more clout and they have if you see vast majority of cases are still ocs being paid up you're not going to lose your company for a few lakhs or even a few crores you're going to pay that out and keep your company so they get paid out uh, the bond market is picking up though right now is not the right time and uh, of course the npas we are still struggling with sadly so uh, on the scorecard uh, the speed it's about five times faster than pre ibc recovery is double but not at global levels we are at about mid 40% from 22% to about 44% the best countries in the world are in the 80s singapore uk canada so we have a lot of room for improvement and the cost i think again we are absolutely global standards the costs have come down dramatically about nine times cheaper than it was before because cost is directly linked to time so again in speed though we keep cribbing it's i think about average is 350 360 days that is as fast as any country in the world and if you can stay at around one year then naturally your cost is much less than if you're going to drag it out for 5 6 7 years so so that's uh, i think that's the opening uh, spiel on the history thank you ram that was very insightful and sort of uh, picks up the second question when you say when you use the word everybody in terms of catering right so there is in ter- in terms of litigation on definitional issues etc the question one must ask today is who does the ibc cater to it was drafted in a particular manner and now there is an expansion that you're seeing and who the ibc should cater to and must cater to so perhaps again at the policy front you could start with the uh, debanchu in terms of the definitions that were used to draft like creditor debtor debt dispute and then talk about uh, exactly who it caters to today which perhaps bairam can address so the banchu what do you think yeah so uh, i'm not sure about uh, you know the background of people who are attending this but to give this uh, answer more context i just briefly explain how the process actually works so any financial creditor or operational creditor can initiate the process the trigger is very objective it has to be a default of a certain amount then once a case gets admitted by the nclt there is a moratorium in place that's a stay nobody can file recovery proceedings or enforce assets uh, during this time and then an insolvency professional is appointed who displaces the management so this is a huge radical change in comparison to what we had in the past where promoters continued to be uh, in in the driving seat during insolvency proceedings especially under the uh, sik industrial companies act so Uh, and then this insolvency professional runs a claims collection process claims are invited from everyone both financial and operational creditors and eventually a committee of creditors is formed uh, and uh, this is again a unique feature of the law our committee only consists of financial creditors uh, 
so therefore it's linked to the stakeholder question it, you don't include operational creditors they have some observational rights but in terms of key decision making is essentially uh, the financial creditors now these financial creditors ultimately uh, you know uh, are in the driving seat but then there is a you know there is a process through which uh, pla- plans are invited and they ultimately decide which plan is the best for the company and uh, you know uh, ultimately submitted to the nclt for its final approval uh, so you know conceptually you will see that at least in theory it looks like a creditor driven and that to financial creditor driven system but you know in if you if you look at it uh, closely you will realize that it's not that creditor driven because for uh, most of these cases that end up in bankruptcy uh, they're already so distressed that the promoters uh, or the shareholders are already out of money in the sense that uh, their equity is already wiped out so therefore creditors even conceptually theoretically are the owners of the company in most of these cases so therefore it's only right that they should now take all the all the decisions so uh, in yes legally it's a creditor driven system but rightly so because of the reason that most of the cases which come in are actually uh, cases where creditors are the owners in real terms and uh, then on the question of why a different system for financial creditors and a different one for operational it both the entry requirements are also different uh, because for most financial debt you know it's it's a you know it's a very fairly organized market and therefore Uh, you know once some months somebody files a, a claim it's fairly easy for the uh, adjudicator to determine whether a default has taken place or not which is not necessarily the case in case of operational debt where there might be factual disputes etc so therefore the entry process is slightly different as some of you might know uh, then in the committee itself uh, one of the main reasons where by only financial creditors were included in the committee was because in the past especially under the sick industrial companies act it was seen that Uh, by involving operation creditors in a lot of decision making it just delayed the process because most of the operation creditors were in practice not prepared to take haircuts they wanted full payment so ultimately what happened was you had litigation for years and years and in theory it appeared as if you are protecting employees you are protecting operation creditors but in practice nobody got anything so therefore for uh, the government and in its wisdom and the blrc in its wisdom decided that we have to make the process efficient and for us to make the process efficient we have to make you know we have to ensure that it's only the financial creditors who actually have very high stakes involved you know who should and who will also be prepared to take haircuts they should be given a say and that's how you know this kind of scheme was designed where they have an upper hand and then the law actually provides multiple protections for these operation creditors where uh, the plan must ensure that they get minimum protection etc and then supreme court has Uh, upheld that operation creditors uh, must get some you know uh, something beyond uh, liquidation value if there is there is room for that uh, and uh, uh, there was an amendment also carried out to this effect later on uh, so so that's broadly on the stakeholder rights and you know the ba- balance of power between debtor and creditor and also promoters although in theory they are out uh, completely and there is the section 29a that pairang been talk about more which kind of debars promoters from coming back uh uh not completely if certain objective thresholds are met there is there is some history to it and uh, as, as and, and in my assessment uh, that provision doesn't have a very strong economic logic because ultimately the creditors decide but that provision is there so then 29a kind of in my assessment kind of imbalances the law a bit it was an act it was it, it was brought in later uh, but the original law kind of didn't have this imbalance it allowed in everybody to come in and also if you look at the liquidation waterfall so once you know 
if a company goes into liquidation so the uh, assets are then to be distributed in accordance in accordance of the liquidation waterfall so that's also very objective mechanism where you know uh, you know say you now you know uh, financial creditors have a much uh, you know a, a, you know a higher uh, place in comparison to other creditors and behram alluded, alluded to this in his response he talked about development of alternative sources of finance in india Uh, and not over not having over reliance on bank credit so one of the main reasons why this categorization of financial and operational was done was also to ensure that we we stop you know we we don't focus so much on secured credit as we used to in the past and secured credit essentially was in the nature of bank credit uh, so it's a very objective distribution mechanism in the in the uh, you know uh, uh, in in the liquidation uh, chapter and this actually is also relevant for the reorganization chapter because now there is an amendment that says that uh, resolution plans if they distribute proceeds in accordance with the distribution waterfall then you know that will be a presumption that the plan is uh, you know fair and you know uh, uh, you know protects the interest of all stakeholders so that that waterfall is kind of relevant in reorganization also today so i think it's a very balanced law in theory it might look as as if it's very creditor centric but in my assessment it's a fairly balanced law protects the interest of everyone uh, in 29a is a bit of a problem in my assessment so in bara will talk about it yeah so uh, thanks uh, i think uh, it, uh, that's a very fair picture i mean the only thing i can say is that uh, we uh, purposefully uh, did not follow say the us model which is very different as is much more akin to the uk model uh, the two huge distinctions are the us is debtor in possession uh, so here it would often be the promoters in possession we did not want that uh, given that most of these uh, companies that were in default and for many years had not been run as well as they should have and uh, two so therefore creditors and again just to re emphasize one last time that if most of the money is from the banks then surely the banks have to have a strong say because they are the ones who have to recover so uh, certainly the financial creditors do have a very strong say and a very strong role the key one is all commercial decisions are taken by what we call the creditors committee uh, the coc and uh, uh, that that i think certainly in the indian context makes very good sense and is very fair uh, the second big difference is the in the us uh, over the decades the courts have a very big role and in fact they do a lot of the commercial bargaining or push the parties to do it here because of the load and the speed at which we wanted speed was really crucial we kept the court's role or the nclt's role to a minimum just to be a kind of umpire and see that the match was being played within the rules so it's very detailed procedure and you have to just make sure that the procedure is being followed everything is being done fairly and other than that now luckily the supreme court has made it amply clear that the courts do not have to make any commercial decisions they don't have to second guess the wisdom of the coc is the coc's money largely so let them decide 
and there was a lot of criticism that what happens then to the small guys the operational creators the suppliers the vendors everybody from employees of course so what happens to those guys and i think what if you look at the stats a vast majority of the cases they call it uh, settled prior to filing or settled during the process all these are the small guys getting their money because again the stick is so large you're not going to risk losing your business so you just pay off whenever you can all the small guys so i think it has given huge leverage to the operational creators yes at the end of the day if something goes straight through the process then there is very little left for them uh, because as debanshu said most of the money then goes to the banks uh, and uh, maybe down the road we they may come up with some kind of minimums that uh, the ocs also need to get uh, let's see but so far i think largely it has worked very well and uh, the last thing on this 29a if we are the only country in the world that has that but again it is because of the track record so economically it doesn't make sense because you took out the, one of the largest players in the game we are saying maximize value by allowing the best bidder to continue the business keep the jobs so the promoters very often are certainly the crucial players in this mna game and you've taken them out but you've taken them out uh, you know again it's not all promoters it's only defaulting promoters or you know there's an, a whole bunch of other you know criminal violations etc kind of people you don't want leading and running businesses so uh it was a very bold move it was a completely uh, political move i and i think the banks uh whoever i've spoken to have said that they have really benefited from this because the biggest stick is the change in credit culture within 3 4 years the amazing change in credit culture where you realize if you take a loan you either pay back or you lose your company so that has been the biggest threat now for smes there is a exemption because for a, a small company probably the only guy is going to be the promoter there won't be so many other third party bidders so you would have a huge spate of liquidations which is certainly not healthy so for them there has been a carve out uh, and there have been already some dilutions to 29a for financial institutions people who are normally doing this kind of uh, restructuring work so then naturally they'll have some failed cases and i dare say it probably will keep getting diluted because once you've achieved it and you've changed the culture then you don't need such a big stick it is definitely a very big stick and india is the only one who's taken such a bold move so who does it cater to i would like to say it caters to everybody uh, except defaulting promoters certainly they have been uh, you know shown the door that's great param because that segues into the next question in terms of processes that existed and didn't work and why ibc then because one big question that has often been raised is winding up and liquidation versus ibc and liquidation so 
where do these processes basically differ because both these processes in all, on their own exist still so per, to either of you who wants to take the question first how do you think these processes differ and should you should they exist and coexist as they do right now varam can i the please please go ahead okay so oh, you prefer me to go first i can varam can can you hear me ishan Yeah, I yeah, can. Okay. Bit yeah. of a glitch, but go ahead. So you're on when, mute, Iman. Sorry, sorry. When we started working on this uh, reform, one of the first things uh, we did was to uh, you know do an assessment of uh, what you know what was the situation on the ground as to uh, you know and that time as I as I said the only thing we had was the Sikh Industrial Companies Act and uh, the liquidation regime uh, under the Companies Act. and the liquidation regime under the companies act was inherited from the liquidation system under uk law so it had been on our statute books uh, since 1956 and the way it was designed was a very court driven system like uh, it had several tests before a case could be admitted and in practice it was very difficult to even get a get a case admitted like and you know you would have hearings on merit on whether a company is insolvent or not uh, at the admission stage forget about the actual liquidation liquidation process even when the company had defaulted and, mo- and most of these cases the company was actually beyond redemption and so in practice it was you know just a forum for litigation and uh, you really didn't have any outcomes and therefore in ibc uh, this study on you know how the 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 vagueness of the admission process in the liquidation system was uh, abused by parties for dealing and you know litigating for, on and make and making sure that creditors don't get their money back this learning was then used to make sure that the ibc entry test is very objective and that is why you have a, the the test under ibc is a single default so that's one big way in which you know th- these two systems were different but again and the focus of ibc is not liquidation it's uh, it's it's a market driven process where you decide whether you can first you know rescue the company and if you can't then the company gets liquidated so it's again in that sense a unique law where it has to go through this common funnel where you have to examine whether a company can be rescued or not and then liquidation whereas you didn't have that under the liquidation regime where the regime for was largely for liquidation and probably that was one of the main reasons why courts were reluctant to order liquidation because you know they may and also because of the political economy uh, you know in the 80s and 90s there was this orientation to try and preserve businesses come what may because the public sector employed a lot of people and a lot of these companies which were getting de- which were defaulting at that time were large public sector you know companies and therefore the courts were reluctant to order liquidation because they thought there'll be job losses and other implications so then didn't care about commercial viability at all and then secondly the liquidation process was also very complicated in the sense that you required permissions of the court for small, you know small small things for you know even if if the liquidator has to sell one asset here to go back to the court uh, you know get a hearing so again that again so basically uh, it was only you know some lawyers uh, you know who would probably uh, 
you know gain some gain out of it uh, and no real outcomes for anybody uh, but you know uh, you you you'd be surprised to know that no, none of the large law firms kind of had insolvency liquidation practices because this was not like not because this system didn't really work there were no outcomes and therefore no one really was interested and the system was actually managed by official liquidators again so that this was kind of a government office you know had its own problems under resourced they couldn't uh, they couldn't uh, kind of work uh, as efficiently as one would expect them to work uh, a part of that office still survives and is relevant for other kinds of liquidation today but in the insolvency context it didn't really work well and lastly this liquidation regime was was all you know it was there was no finality to it conceptually if a company gets uh, uh, insolvent and you know liquidation is ordered then you know that should be a death knell and then you know uh, there should be no possibility of coming back after that but unfortunately under the old regime you had a system where it was possible for companies to litigate even after a liquidation order people would still still attempt to kind of try and rescue the company despite a liquidation order so it was a chaotic situation and the same was true for uh, the rescue law that we have which was the sick industrial companies act and maybe behram would uh, talk about uh, that piece of it uh, but broadly the companies act liquidation system under the old law uh, was completely defunct the 2013 act kind of continued with that and the ibc repealed insolvency as a ground for liquidation from the 2013 act but the other grounds for liquidation are still there like most corporate laws uh, corporate law uh, folks will understand that insolvency is not the only ground for liquidation there are there are other grounds as well like you know uh, if it's not possible for two partners to work together in a business to uh, two shareholders to work together they can actually file and they can uh, you know that can be a ground for uh, liquidation on just an equitable grounds and there are multiple other grounds government can also file a petition and get a company liquidated whether or not it's insolvent so all those grounds are still retained and they are in the companies act but insolvency as a ground has been removed and moved to uh, ibc and voluntary liquidation as a system has now also moved to ibc and uh, so that's that's largely about the interaction between ibc and and and, and the companies act as far as liquidation is thanks uh, you know i'm uh, aware of the time and uh, also i definitely want to leave some time for q and a so i'm going to go a bit fast uh, if uh, is too fast then you can ask me questions in the q and a time but uh, basically uh, i just want to reiterate that the earlier regimes just didn't work so uh, sika was way too uh, generous to the defaulting uh, promoters management uh, and you just ran got a stay and uh, thereafter nothing much happened there was no question of this uh, rescue it went on for years and in some unfortunate cases you just took away as many assets as you wanted so by the time the banks got it it was virtually a wiped out company with no assets and uh, uh, a lose lose situation uh, because of that because the banks felt that that was so pro company promoter management and the only goal was the section 22 stay sarfezi came in and the as often happens in life that became extremely bank friendly it was designed uh, i don't want to say drafted but certainly designed by the banks and therefore i think went the other way and uh, was effective until the infamous mardia judgment which took out most of the teeth of uh, sarfezi 
and thereafter it it was okay but again it not really effective it slowed down a lot and and uh, you know the results showed in our npas and our problems and therefore the ibc uh, there was also uh, this uh, rehab and uh, restructuring part in uh, the new companies act unfortunately that never really got a chance it was uh, notified but never came into force uh it you know it was 2014 i guess by then we were already talking about blrc and the new regime and clearly it was not as broad as the new regime because only secured creditors for example could file there uh it had no market mechanism it was again very much promoter led and you you know file the plan or the court was to come up with a plan which you can imagine how long that would have taken Uh, so there was no market mechanism and certainly there was no 29e credit culture concept so uh, not sure and of course uh, we are biased given that we are so close to and bottom line it never took off avc has achieved so far and there are some other concepts which we always uh, aspired to like prepacks and now especially for smes and covid has some more learnings uh, but you know keep in mind that the sooner you go speed is really of the essence in this the faster you do it the better your realization and the earlier you go the better your chance for rescue if you have been in you for months and years then to come back home and become healthy is really really tough so ibc again default one day default and it was 1 lakh and everyone said oh god isn't that too low there'll be blackmail but if it is a undisputed debt and it's 3 4 10 lakhs paid off i mean even if it's the catering guy or the security guy why will you not pay after all it's a undisputed claim so just paid off now again because of covid is gone up to 1 crore because the fear was that for the smes uh, you know if they got these claims in these times it would put them into ibc so i understand that and i guess 1 crore is fair more than that they can't do fortunately without an amendment uh, but uh, but that's it thank you I'm glad that you mentioned three packs, Bairam. So that's just the last question to you before we do open house. Just thirty seconds on has IBC supported deal making because that was one of the pitches that was made. Has it increased, decreased? What has happened because of the IBC to the deal side? Yeah, it definitely has. I mean, in some ways, it's a kind of uh, stressed MNA. because uh, uh, you know debanchu used the perfect word uh, it's purely uh, market driven and rescue driven so any third party bidder can come in and we've seen you know from all the large guys uh, the first 12 that came in uh, sr steel or whether it was binani or uh, bhushan in all those you saw it was really mna and uh, what i can tell you from a practical point of view 
is the great thing uh, about IBC is that you have the core IBC team. Then you certainly have the MNA team because you have due diligence, but very fast because it's in that strict timeline. But you certainly have to do the DD and all the normal MNA process in a compressed time frame. You have to get the competition guys in uh, because again you need approval like you would need in any other MNA. You also uh, sadly there's a lot of the litigation guys who get involved because. Up to now, there's been tons of litigation. So, has it increased deal flow and M&A? No question, it has because that's the game. Rescue is the key objective, and only if rescue is impossible, you go in for liquidation. Thank you for that, Bairam, and that sort of gets into a lot of questions that we are getting because we have our hundred plus participants. So, we try to take a few questions. And uh, and take it from there. So one very important question that was uh, that I can see is the question of what exactly is a default. So the question that was being uh, is has been put is essentially that the issuance of a default certificate and should that be something that should be considered or not, but the NCLT in Kolkata has said there's no such requirement. So do you want to weigh in a little bit on administrative requirements of determining default so that courts need not question whether it is indeed a default or not? Yeah, so that's, uh, uh, I'm glad you asked that. And I think Debanshu had already talked about that there's a, you know, a different level for financial creditors and operational creditors. In, and there is a, one thing we had no chance to talk about, but this brand new uh, entity called uh, Information Utility. Uh, so the idea was there's a massive asymmetry of information between uh, the borrower and the creditor. So... Uh, to try and smoothen this, we said that India is so well-placed given technology. Uh, you should have this information utility. The minute you sign an agreement, whether it's with the banks, for sure, you would do it. And you would also do it, say, with uh, the bonds or the mutual funds. But even if you've got a long-term supply, oil supply contract or a long-term coal contract, uh, anything that is substantial, the idea is you file the key, the salient features of that agreement with the IU. And the benefit of filing that is then that is evidence. Then there is no question. You don't have to show any other. That, that one filing, that one single piece of paper is binding evidence. Because once again, as we said, we want the process to go fast. We don't want it to become that normal, you know, uh, it takes months and months just to decide is it undisputed or is it a disputed claim so where you use the iu and i'm happy to say it that was the last leg it did happen much slower but today all the banks are on board most of the financial institutions and i would say uh, that uh, even the ocs even the big supply guys i guess employees may be embarrassed but frankly even for employees it's very easy because you just show your payslip You've been paid or you've not been paid. So that should, again, be very straightforward. So that's the idea. Make it as quick as possible. 
to move with the admission process and the rescue process fast i mean that's the game plan in terms of the rescue process that we're uh, talking about one question that is often being asked is whether the timelines work so perhaps devanshu maybe you could talk about the thought process in putting those that timeline and beram you can answer this question on whether it's actually working so as uh, beram kind of uh, hinted i think one of the most unique pieces of the law is the fact that you have, you have to decide whether to rescue or liquidate and if you decide to rescue then to finalize a plan within a specific timeline and again it kind of relates back to the past where people would just kind of uh, negotiate and litigate forever and therefore the law was designed to ensure that there is a hard stop and if you can't decide you know within that time even if there is some commercial viability in the company then the company goes into liquidation and then it then it's only a matter of cutting losses when it, you know liquidate the company distribute the assets but then uh, from a policy point of view the objective was that no matter what you have to decide within a given timeline and especially in the indian context where Uh, you know the creditors have very different set of incentives you have public sector banks you have private sector banks and even within private sector you have indian and foreign banks so unless you have some kind of a hard stop it's you know people can negotiate forever and you know you know there'll be no solution and therefore that's one of the main reasons why we had a deadline and i think that's one reason why the law has worked really effectively uh, uh, although it's been diluted a bit in practice and maybe beram will talk more about it uh it's not really uh, honored in every case and uh, uh you know especially given the fact that nclts uh, uh, often take a lot of time even if the parties you know finalize their plan and submit it to the nclt nclts often take a lot of time uh and in fact i the uh, iuc was uh, uh, recently amended to ensure that even if you take the litigation time into account even that, the entire thing cannot exceed 330 days the timelines are 180 it can be further extended by another 90 217 all which was the original thing we proposed and uh, now the government amended the ibc to say that um, even including litigation can't exceed uh, 330 but uh, in practice uh, the story is slightly different it's not as bad as what it used to be before ibc but uh, it certainly uh, is uh, it's not 330 or 217 in all cases yeah timelines work Uh, they are they are very difficult timelines as i told you on the ibbi website if i'm right it's uh, now at 365 or 370 which is still world class no one does it faster uh, very tough on the uh, ip i have to say he's got a lot to do and uh, but keep in mind uh, this guy's a, 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 the lady or gentleman is a individual but they don't have to become supermen they can of course hire uh, an mna uh, banker they can hire they always a lawyer they the court team and they have mentioned the proof of claims getting that organized then they are now uh, you know there are also a lot of these uh, uh, fraudulent and not arms length uh dealings so they have to go through all that and they have to run the mna process so uh it's it's a tough ask 
But uh, I think in 3.30, it's definitely doable. What slows us down clearly is the uh, NCLT and the courts. And it was fantastic that 3.30 was the hard stop. But of course, our judges don't like that. I mean, they don't like timelines under any circumstances. And even the Supreme Court, uh, as expected, said that 3.30 days is not mandatory. It's uh, directory. But if the courts could get disciplined, uh, I think it is doable. It's uh, it's tough, but doable. Okay, we'll just do two more. Sorry. I just one, one small thing here, Ishana. So, although, you know, it's, you know, courts uh, at times do take their sweet time. I just want to mention that in terms of infrastructural support, we must understand that uh, our courts are not very well resourced. So just to have one argument in their support, uh, and uh, we must realize that all said and done, we are in a developing country. So while our market might have evolved and gone and gone in a very different direction, the fact of the matter is that the government and the infrastructure and the support systems are still not there. And I think it's a larger uh, policy question, which is not just true for relevant for IBC, but for the entire ecosystem. No, that's a very good point. I mean, it's a super point because you have to give them the tools to achieve it. They are working crazy hours. That I can tell you for sure. Uh, the I mean, you're really talking basic. Forget IT and computers. One of the guys told me, Are pehle to pencil or pankha de dijiye. So things can be really bad. Uh, Bombay itself was a complete mess. You could not get into the courtroom. Now, of course, uh, they've got a brand new space. And the government has doubled uh, the number of members from, I think it was 34. Now they are 66. So they were virtually doubled. But uh, it is certainly, it's a very well-made point. And we still should not have a jam at the top of the pyramid. So I'm talking about the appellate tribunal. And I, the sooner they have three, four more of those, because otherwise it all gets jammed up. But on the in a lighter vein, when uh, Dibanshu and me started, they, we were always promised, you know, we tried to get specific tribunal, a bankruptcy tribunal. And uh, the FM said, listen, uh, if NCLT is going to come just about when you are ready. And he was right. It came about two months uh, before we were ready. So he said, let's see how it works. And you'll have a exclusive bench. And then the joke was when we said, what are you talking about? It is, there's no exclusive bench. They said, of course, up to lunch, it's exclusive for company. After lunch, it's exclusive for you. So these guys have a really hard time. And the sooner, and frankly, the other provisions of the Companies Act are suffering much more because IBC is getting priority. So they really need to increase the strength improve the infrastructure and have exclusivity because it needs specialization. So, Debanshu is dead right. That all brings us to the last most important question uh, that uh, a few of the audience members have raised. COVID-19 and IBC, when we are stressed in infrastructure in times without lockdown, how do you look at the efficiency of the IBC in the times of today, because we perhaps needed more than ever to work as a law. So I think, you know, to be honest, right now, it's been suspended up to 25th September. Uh, I really personally, I really hope it's not extended because as you just said, you really needed to work. 
the idea was that you know if nclts are only hearing emergency cases and you'll have a flood of uh, uh, ibc cases as is in the us europe uk so you have to suspend it for some time i understand that but i think now is the time to uh, bring it back they've also of course hiked the amount as we said to 1 crore uh, and they've got this new restructuring scheme that the rbi has come out with so i hope ibc is back in the game because you know people the banks are flush with money but they're not lending they're too scared to lend so with ibc again they'll know that they have that big stick and they should feel a little bolder in lending and unless they lend the economy can't come back so i think ibc should uh, should definitely come back and as i mentioned to you uh, the uh, prepack regime for smes i think should be there in september for sure and then for everybody else uh, towards the end of the year i think dr sahu also mentioned this uh, at a uh, public gathering yesterday so Uh, that will also certainly help i mean the problem is so large you should have all the tools in the box ibc is not some you know uh, magic wand you need everything to work in the environment to get it going yeah i'll uh, i completely agree with bairam the only thing that i'll add here is that uh, one of the most important support functions that ibc provides to this ecosystem is legal certainty while all of these out of court mechanisms are fantastic and in fact they are working really well in the shadow of ibc uh, even before the pandemic hit but because of the pandemic because of the uncertainties everywhere i think all stakeholders need more legal certainty and that's possible only under a statutory framework either if you have a prepack system that that also ideally should be uh, through a statutory framework but ibc is actually more relevant now i think the only reason i think politically the only reason the government kind of had to suspend it is because we have a displacement regime if we had something similar to a us regime where you know the promoters continued etc i think it wouldn't have happened but it was more of a question of political messaging that the government had to tell people that uh, you know we are doing something for you and that's why it being suspended but in practice i have spoken to a lot of people uh, currently it's not you know in practice not very relevant because there is an rbi moratorium in place so therefore anybody who cannot pay can in any case avail of that moratorium it's only after the moratorium is lifted that we'll truly realize the value of the suspension and i think uh, they and we know for a fact it was very evident from uh, the rbi uh, st- financial stability report that was released in july that we are looking at massive defaults in the near future if the moratorium is lifted and we will need a certain legal a very you know a formal legal regime to make sure uh, uh, that it works and just one last statement you know the irony is that uh, when we had the last financial crisis when kingfisher went under uh, uh, because of internal reasons and also external reasons the irony is we didn't have a bankruptcy law that time and therefore we could not rescue those companies but now we have a bankruptcy law and the government has suspended it uh so therefore i think they should definitely not extend the suspension and make sure that uh it's uh, you know going to force as as soon as possible and if, if you know if you if you want to kind of relax things like 29a etc this is the right time to do that uh so that uh, you know you you allow promoters that flexibility but i think we need ibc more than ever before in the pandemic so yeah i mean that's that's absolutely right and just to make it very uh, clear to the listeners the when rbi has this restructuring it can only direct its constituents which is the banks but in today's world 
we have achieved what we wanted to that there's a lot of other credit besides banks so mutual funds that's obviously the regulator is sebi rbi can't tell them what to do uh, insurance uh, lic being a prime example again uh, gives a lot of credit only irda can tell them and finally the pension guys so there are large pools of credit capital besides banks today and those guys don't join the what we call the intercreditor or the restructuring agreement and then it fails so as debanchu has very uh, importantly pointed out if the only mechanism that brings all the necessary players into the room and on the table is ibc uh that's a fantastic parting thought uh, baram because it also sort of sets the tone for why we need to study this law uh and we are why we need to teach this law and why it has to become a part of probably law school curriculum going forward because we do see that this this law sort of holding together the churning of the economy and also uh, in general being used much more in the near future so uh, with that if the two of you have any parting thoughts that be great and i can move on to a thank you i uh, know thank you so much and uh, you know it was one of the most uh, incredible experiences uh, of my career so uh, thanks a lot and uh, hope uh, we see it in action soon thank thanks again ishana thanks uh, thanks bairam for this uh, for this excellent discussion uh, yeah i have nothing to say so uh, thank you audience i know we couldn't get to all the 40 questions that were raised but uh, perhaps you could round it up and send it to the upgrad team and we try to get back to you with answers thank you for spending this afternoon with us thank you so much param and dimanshu because this is the only learning process that we have in terms of insights into core and i'm glad that both of you could be on board and uh, i apologize for chasing you the way that i did <laughs> thank you thank very you much. much and i wish all of you a good weekend bye bye